Here's a few words with Brad Neely of Southwest Fire Academy. Hey, Scott, how's it going? Good, man. What's been happening at the Academy? Well, lots has been happening over the last couple of weeks. We wrapped up filming for our new commercial, which should be ready in January. We got some great footage with a proper film crew and some awesome settings. And as we found out, lighting is so key for all that. So we were standby mode for some of these great shots that hopefully will turn out excellent for us. We had Brantford Fire here. The recruits were here for a few days over the last couple of weeks for live fire, some advanced techniques, firefighter survival, writ training, and they got to experience all that with some of our top instructors, as well as experiencing the 24-hour model of the life of a firefighter in Southern Ontario. We now have our principal and our vice principals officially in their roles full-time, so that will help the whole business and, and everything we do be a little bit smoother and more effective as well as allow for growth the way it should be pulled off. We do have room coming up for Instructor 1 and Instructor 2 courses in mid-November. So if anybody wants to jump in on those last minute, there's still some spots available. Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode 55 of Multiple Calls. I'm Scott Hewlett. The greatest irony in firefighting is that the thing we are most known for being courageous in the face of isn't something that the vast majority of us are actually afraid of. We respect and accept the physical risks, but contrary to the public's belief, fear of fire isn't often a factor for us. The truth is, we're more likely to be driven and excited about the challenge and opportunity to help. There are tangible reasons for that. Knowledge, training, experience, and faith in our equipment and our teams. We don't fear it because we understand it, and we know what to do about it. What we are truly afraid of, whether we all want to admit it and face it or not, is the fear of failure, fear of disappointing, fear of embarrassment, fear of our emotions, fear of being wrong, and fear of vulnerability. We fear what we don't understand and we don't know how to address, so we avoid it all and it continues to lurk in the dark corners of our minds. Courage is being confronted with a fearful experience and taking action despite it. And all the research points to how knowledge, training, experience, and faith in our mental health tools and our support network can make us braver in the face of our internal world. So step forward to go first. Put your hand up and ask the question. Look at data and challenge your anecdotal beliefs. Stop white-knuckling the way you want things to be because you're afraid of the truth. Embrace the mental health suck and do the work. Firefighter up like everyone believes you can in the face of challenging things. Put you first before the call so you can be at your best to put them first on the call. Here's my chat with Daniel Drury. Why don't you start off by telling me where you grew up and tell me a little bit about your family. I grew up in a suburb of Sacramento up until about my eighth grade year. And then I moved still the northern side of California in Modesto, Central Valley. And I was there through high school. I joined the Marine Corps from then. And then when I got out of the Marine Corps, I lived in a in the city of Orange County for about four years before I ended up coming to Texas. Man, I came out and fell in love with the state. There was just a different vibe about it. And it, it is true what they say, like people are friendly and they, they really were. It was such a different look for me because of the how big the state is. And you get to see 
where we stayed during that time, there's longhorns around there and people are on horses. And when you see that country side of it, it's such a, such a night and day from where I grew up in California. So it was, it was really cool and, and kind of peaceful for me. And I fell in love with it. I decided I want to be a fireman like right before I moved over and I got into a fire school and an EMT school through the community college out there. And man, that was just kind of the, the spark. And it just continued from that point. seems like the secret's out about Austin. Austin was a easy transition. I think it is for probably most people from California because it, it kind of has the same vibe. I mean, not to mention now, probably the majority of people there are from California now, but very active city. It's grown so much even since I've moved to Texas, but it has that downtown feel with the lake there. People are very active and fit. It kind of had that Southern California feel to it, the music and things like that. But the longer I was there in Austin for about a year or two, I kind of got tired of of that feeling that it was too close to to home for me and I wanted a little bit more space so I made my way down to San Antonio but still this day when I go to Austin it's, it's such a cool city. What was your family dynamic growing up? Pretty normal for the most part. I grew up in the suburbs. My dad worked construction his whole life. He wasn't home that often. It's a tough thing to be in, especially when he was, he was getting started. Cause you, when it rains, whatever else that the work's not there, but man, my dad worked his ass off to make sure that, that we didn't want for anything. For the most part, we weren't wealthy by any means, but whether he was struggling or, or we were, he, my family never made it feel that way. My mom was a stay at home mom for the most part. She did a few things here and there extremely loving. She took care of everything. She came from a big family. She was very family oriented. She was very, very involved in our lives. I think for most of my young years, my dad worked so hard that he, that was almost his sole figure in my life for a little bit was, I mean, he, he was just gone working, but he was providing for his family. And, and I see that now on the back end, but my mom and she went out of her way to, to handle everything at home pretty much. And then tragically you ended up losing her. I did. Yeah. Just after my 18th birthday, my mom was diagnosed with leukemia. About six months before that, it was very sudden. Nothing, no really signs leading up. She woke up with pain in her legs, excruciating pain. They ended up calling 911. She was transported by ambulance. And after a while of tests, I, you know, I was young at the time, so you don't, everything's going on and you're concerned, but that never crosses your mind, right? Like you don't, it's just, she's sick or something's wrong and they'll fix it or whatever else. And man, once we found out that it was leukemia, same thing, you just, you don't ever think that person's going to die or that they're not going to be there. You're like, okay, well, what's the next step? What's the next step? All the chips fell in line like really quickly and how they should have. She was placed on a bone marrow transplant list. She was young in good health. She got a donor relatively quickly, which from what I heard back then was like kind of a, an unheard of thing. She was able to get the bone marrow transplant and it just didn't take man for whatever reason her, her body rejected it. She didn't live very much longer after all that. Absolutely tragic. Like I said, up until the moment, I'm sure it took a while after. Like it just, it never crossed my mind that she wasn't going to pull through, that she wasn't going to make it. And she was just such a prominent figure in my life that I don't think I could have been ready for it any which way. I think that the Marine Corps for me at that time was such a good thing because I I think I needed that escape. If I were to look back on it now, it'd, it'd be probably a hard thing, especially for my dad and, and my sister. I have a, a younger sister, but for me, I I was able to kind of get a change of scene and escape from all that. And I, I can't imagine what it was like for them, for my dad now, now that I'm I'm married with a family, like 
for my dad to go home to that same house. And now he went from being a sole provider just as a job and then coming home and having his family. Now he's, he's a single dad and he, I don't think he's, he really ever had to deal with that in his whole life. And now it all kind of just falls on his, in his lap, regardless of what he wanted. And man, I couldn't imagine being in that position at all, but it was tough for me without a doubt. Does your sister live close to you now too, or is she still back out in California? She moved to Texas around the same time my dad did. And then she, my dad lives up in Northern Texas, like Fort Worth area. And I live in San Antonio. So we're about five hours away, but she was up there for a while. She took a job in a uh, man. She'd probably kill me. Cause I don't, I, I want to say North Carolina, it's either North or South, but North Carolina. <laughs> and she's been out there too. I know she's trying to make her way back. I know she misses Texas, but she was a, a shoe in here. She, she loved it. I'd imagine she's probably on her way back here relative in the next year or two. And you mentioned the Marine Corps and that straight out of high school, but maybe just back up and walk me through like your school experience and how that was for you. Yeah. School was, if I were to say education wise, man, it was easy. School just kind of, I never really took serious. If I were to have a a regret looking back, that was it because I, I could have excelled. It was easy. I didn't take it serious. I cared more about the social life aspect of it. So my grades weren't ever horrible, but they weren't ever the potential I probably could have had them at. I played sports. I played baseball pretty much like pony leagues, things like that. Growing up real young, I played basketball almost my whole life, but never really in an organized team. I played in some city leagues and stuff. But then when I got to high school, of course, football was the big thing out where I was in most places. So I played football. I was in trouble a lot, man. I was a hot-headed kid. I fought a lot. There was always something to prove. That area of Modesto where I grew up was kind of a, a weird spot we had. When we got out there, I remember it was kind of open land and a lot of dairy farms and stuff. And right on that border where we lived, it kind of transitioned over to a lower income area. And we had at the time a lot of gangs moving up from LA up into Northern California to trying to get from underneath all the police coming down hard on them. So we got a lot of that. So my high school was right down the border. So we it was heavy with gangs. But there was a lot of gentrification and and new suburb areas that people like my family were moving into. And there was always something to be proven. And and I think I fell more into that than I did anything else. And that's kind of where most of my high school years were, was either out partying, getting into trouble or, or fighting and things like that. So then what drew you to, like, I know you chose to go to the Marine Corps and have that bit of an escape, but there are probably a lot of other avenues you could have taken. So with that sort of hot-headed, unstructured existence at that time? Like what drew you to the hard structure and straightening you out through the Marine Corps? I always wanted to be a Marine. My dad will probably tell you that I talked about being a Marine since I was really, really little, but almost the the arrogance of it is is that the, those guys were the tip of the spear. Like those guys were it, man. You hear somebody's a Marine, you think that that dude's a, a badass and and you wanted to get to know him or, or wear that. And of course, just like anybody, you see those guys and and dress blues and they're, they're sharp and man something about it the challenge of it like being able to to earn that title like i, I wanted it man at a young age I, I wanted to be able to tell somebody one day that that i'm a marine i don't know if it was just a thing of getting in trouble or, or being the cool kid or whatever but i always had this like notion in my head that i wasn't gonna ever go to college like that just wasn't where i was gonna go like it was more of a blue collar thing which again like sucked because if I could have done it back then and it'd be a lot easier looking back now but I just always had it in my head that that I was going to go get that title and go be a marine like whatever it took I I was going to go have that that under my belt one day 
Did you find now being in the fire service and then looking back on your time in the Marines, when you say a Marine, like the way you describe them, that's the way I, from the outside, see things too. But I remember I had this expectation of how firefighters were going to be. And I kind of had that same idealistic view in my mind. And then when I got in, then you, you start to mature and you, you realize that in every industry and in every group of people, it's not always uniform, right? Some people just don't want to be there or aren't great or don't live up to it. So do the Marines have that small faction too? Is it just a human thing no matter where you go? Without a doubt. I, I wish I could tell you different because I'm sure every Marine wishes it could tell you different. But absolutely, there's guys that don't fit within that view that, that we view Marines from the outside, without a doubt. There's guys that, that slip through the cracks. The Marine Corps, people tend to forget that it's its own entity as well. So there's a job for everything, really, except for the Marine Corps doesn't cover a few things like, like medical stuff and things like that. But if there's paperwork that needs to get done, there's a Marine that does that because that's their job. If there's painting that needs to happen, there's a Marine, like there's, there's a job for everything. It's not just a bunch of guys going to war. So the avenues for complacency are, are there. Now in the spec ops units, I'd probably go as far as to say that the majority of like infantry units and things like that, it's a lot, lot less. Those numbers are drastically smaller because the room for complacency isn't there. And the Marine Corps is still real, as far as the military goes, it's extremely small compared to the other branches. And through the test of time, everything's kind of kept the same when it comes to traditions and expectations and things like that. I could sit here and say that Marines nowadays didn't go through what I went through and the Marine Corps is different, but it, it works every year, right? Like the guys that went the year before me will tell you that my Marine Corps was easier than their Marine Corps and, and it all trickles down. But the truth is, man, like when you come across the guys, it was hard to earn that title. It was hard. And the guys that when you come across the units that you know were solid units and those guys had a good reputation, those guys are still the same, man. They're hardworking. They're put together. They're disciplined. Like they don't tolerate the complacency at all. But there are avenues of the Marine Corps where those standards aren't as high when you get into the actual job portion of it and, and your career portion of it. But the, at the end of the day, you go meet somebody and shake hands and all four of us say we're Marines. Maybe we did different jobs and maybe our fitness levels are different and our discipline levels are different, things like that. That's usually the reason why. So overall, do you think their culture is stronger than ours currently or is it the same? I would say that it's stronger. I think that the traditions and the standards, even when they, they change from year to year, generation to generation, I do think that they've maintained a high standard of expectations throughout. It works in with with the culture of, of the generations and how the world is going and things like that. They can't always be the same hard asses that they were 80 years ago and compared to now, but, but I do. I do think that they've kept that line across the board pretty well. And what was your first exposure to the fire service? When I got out of the Marine Corps, like everybody who gets out of the military, I would imagine everybody does the same thing and jumps into school because we get the GI Bill and they pay for school and you can get paid to go to school. It's amazing. But without a doubt, you have no direction. At least I didn't. I had no idea what I was going to go to school for. I just know that that was what you were supposed to do. In the meantime, I had gotten my, I was in good shape coming out of the Marine Corps and I had gotten my personal trainer certification. And so I figured, well, man, I, I could do that. And on my downtime, I got in with a gym working as a personal trainer and eventually like worked my way up as an assistant manager. But 
you come across everybody in the gym, especially when you're working there. You, you get to sit down across from people and get to know them like, hey, what do you do for a living? What do you do this? I'd come across because I, I want to know. I had guys that went to the police academy that I was in the Marine Corps with. I don't know. Just something about it wasn't for me. It was not nearly as difficult as cops have it now. But even back then, it was still a lot of scrutiny and just a hard job that those guys were doing, man, with the cameras and everything else. And so I was like, I don't know if I want to do all that. But I didn't know what I wanted to do. But I I knew I needed, I needed some kind of camaraderie like I had in the Marine Corps. I needed some kind of title that I needed to make my next one to earn. And I wanted something that was going to challenge me. I couldn't do the repetitiveness. I couldn't do something that I, I just had down. I wanted something where I, I showed up one day and I was like, man, I, I didn't know how to handle that. And I figured it out. I, I missed that. And the Marine Corps is a lot of that. And so a lot of times I just straight up ask guys like, hey, man, what do you do for a living? How do you like it? And I came across a lot of different professions. It was such a weird thing. Every fireman that I asked, I'd ask these guys, what do you do for a living? I'd say, I'm a fireman. How do you like it? It's the best job in the world. Verbatim, every single guy that I talked to that when he asked, when I asked him, what do you do? And he answered, I'm a fireman. That's literally the second sentence that came out of all of their mouths, like word for word. And so I was like, man, there has to be something to this. Anybody else? I'm an iron worker. And you're like, how do you like it? And he's like, oh, man, I love it. I've been doing it for years. And then you meet another one and they're like, nah, it's hard work. I wish I was doing something else, you know, whatever. Man, these guys didn't. Across the board, they all said the same thing, that it was the best job in the world. So when I started to dive into a little bit, I didn't know a whole lot about what firemen do. I didn't know that they were so deep in the medical side of it, or at least that you can be. And I got a little bit of medical aspect before, like pre-deployment when I went to Afghanistan. I enjoyed it a lot. It intrigued me about the medical side because of how diagnostic it was and like how problem solving it was. I, I thought it was really cool. And that was kind of the end of it. And I never really got to touch it again. And when I fi- started to find out that, all right, they do a little bit of medical, but then they go to fire calls. And really at the end of the day, the more and more I looked at it, it was like, man, firemen are just problem solvers. Like people call 911 when they have a problem. And as long as it's not like criminal, and you don't just need police strictly like firemen just come and show up and, and fix problems for for everybody. Mm-hmm. And I thought I was like, man, that's, that's exactly what I want to do. So when I actually went and got into the fire school, it was kind of one of those things where it was like, all right, I'm going to try this out and we'll see how it goes. And I always have plan B, C, D that I can try to fall back on and figure it out. And I hit that fire school in Austin at ACC and you couldn't have paid me to do another career, man. I, I fell in love with it immediately. I, It was just that like aura moment where I was like, this is exactly what I'm supposed to be doing in this life. Do you think the, the medical side of things is like when we talk about the five fundamentals, do you think that's the missing one? Do you think it should be six? Because basically we're every call we're going to, we're dealing with people. And take AutoX, for example, and I was just you know helping teach that yesterday. One of the things I passed on to the students was we can do a great job cutting the car apart, but if we don't deal with the patient inside, if it's not safe for the medics to get in there and it's us, then we haven't really done our job. So being good at your main medical assessments and critical intervention treatment is is key. So I see often that we're talking about the five fundamentals with the ladders and search and force entry and flow and moving and hose deployment, but it seems to me like the medical is that missing piece in when we're talking about mastering the basics as firefighters. 
I put a lot of emphasis on it. The firefighting stuff is what's sexy and it's what's fun without a doubt. Like I love fire and everybody loves fire. And I, I would say that that's probably more of a, a commonality because you can put that across the border, even between different countries and things like that, that when you get to volunteer departments who don't necessarily require you to have any medical training or an EMT certification or things like that, or even big cities like Austin, where they don't run ambulances, they have a separate entity that runs ambulances. So they're first responding and they other places that may not require you to, to hold some of these. I know uh, New York's another one where some of those guys aren't EMTs either. So obviously the, the common bond between it all is, is fire across the board. Even for rural volunteer departments, things like that, if you're going to be the first ones there well before an ambulance gets there, that's your job at that point. And you're either an asset or a liability, right? So you 100%, you need to be an asset to, to do something while you're there and make something different. Now, the places that do require you to be hold a license in, as an EMT or a paramedic, 100%, it, it's your job. It's no different of your job than it is going in and rescuing people in a fire. It's your job. When the tones go off for a fire, you have to be just as good and just as serious about it as when the tones go off for a medical run. There's no difference at all. You can't shift it one way or another. That's just completely negligent to go like, well, I'm good at that. Or I'm good. Like, no, that that's your whole entire job. You have to be good at all the aspects of it. So I do, man. I think that that is something core. I take it seriously, but I also, I love it. So it's intriguing to me. But like I said, I, I want you to be able to throw a ladder and pull a line and search just as well as when you're you're next to me. I want to be able to trust you that you know what meds we're, we need and you know what dosage it is because you you put the time and effort into studying that stuff too and knowing your protocols and knowing all that stuff. Like it has to be well balanced. Even just with airway management and a BVM, like I feel looking back over my career, I've had more opportunities to be a part of saving someone's life by keeping them from going VSA by doing those key basics than I ever have pulling anyone out of a fire. The majority of our calls, a lot of the stuff is basic type of first aid. People just react and then call and then we get there and, and are able to explain to them like, okay, this is this is something that we can handle at a lower level than what somebody would have thought it was. Even a lot of the real life-saving stuff and it all comes down to that that kind of basic stuff. So even if you're good at those core stuffs and, and you're an EMT, you don't necessarily need to know all these drugs and how they interact with the body and things like that. But for sure, just like the core principles of fire, we, we need to be good at these core things like airway and chest compressions and things like that. But I think the emphasis, it needs to be there. It's a hard thing to do because, like I said, it's not it's not as sexy. It's not as fun. Our medical calls can be take a toll on you, and they're not nearly as important as, as everybody thinks they are a lot of the time. But fire is 100%. So what was the process of getting on like? I started with a, a little bit smaller of a town just outside San Antonio. I like a lot of the areas around here. You have to have both your EMT license at the minimum and your fire certification as well before you can apply. It differs from those different towns. They can kind of run their hiring process however they want to. So luckily in around the San Antonio area, they all kind of use the same type of test when it comes to like written and some of the physical stuff is pretty close as well. But it was competitive when I applied for that department. There was, man, there was a lot of guys like 15 or so, which at that time, they, I think they were only hiring a few people. So for me, I, I, I did a lot to prepare 
for it. I had no idea what the hiring process would be like. Some of the best advice I ever got in my career was to go take tests and apply at every department that had an opening that I could get to, whether I intended to work there or not. And I took that to heart and me and my buddy traveled all over Texas taking tests, whether we intended to work at that department or not. That set me up for success greatly. It exposed me to a lot of different testing processes. It exposed me to a lot of how much similarity there can be between some of the testing process. So by the time I went to places that I I really wanted to get on with, I was pretty well prepared and I had exposure to the written tests. I had known like, okay, this is what usually guys expect from you physically. So this is what to expect. So I was in shape and I was ready for it. It was a competitive process, but it wasn't extremely difficult for me when I got on there. The crew that I got on with, we just fit like a glove and it worked out. The big city process is very, very different. It's long. It's across the board, you know, so it gives everybody the the same chance because you don't have to be certified. You can come in off the street. And so when I went through with, with my department, there was massive numbers, thousands of people taking the written tests. And then you wait to get on with that. Luckily, they give military veterans an extra five points, which on a scale of one to a hundred doesn't seem like much, but man, it separates you from the pack greatly. I ended up testing real well. And then from about the time you take the test, the written test, to the time you actually start the fire academy, it's almost a year long. It's a real long grueling process. I was really happy that I was already working as a firefighter because I felt like that took a lot of stress off me. I, I knew that I wanted to get on with the big city and I, I had a, my department in mind, but I felt comfortable to where I was like, okay, if it doesn't work out at all, or if it doesn't work out this year, I'm still a fireman. I'm still love my job. I'm still happy with my crew. Like I don't have to have a whole lot of stress. Like, man, I really got to, really got to get this job. I felt like that helped a lot. Looking back, working small and then leading up to a big city was probably like one of the best things I had in my career because it, it taught me to operate at a level where you were kind of the true jack of all trades and did everything. And there wasn't a whole lot of people showing up to your scenes. So you had to get a lot done and you were far out from some of these hospitals. So your EMS had to be really good when it came to life-saving measures and the expectations were high. So when I came over to the big city, it I felt like I had a, a good amount of experience to where now when you're getting a ton of people thrown at your scenes, you can kind of actually take on on any task and any job to go like, yeah, I could do that. I could do that. Where starting out for some other guys that I, I could see went through the experience of they didn't really know what they were supposed to be doing when they didn't have their exact task because there's so many people there that almost you feel like, well, everybody has to be doing something, right? So where compared to a small town, you there's nobody else. So when you finish one task, you go to the next and you go to the next and go to the next without pretty seamlessly. And what was the recruit experience like? It was pretty easy, I guess. Like I was really well prepared when I went through the second fire academy because I, I was working as a fireman. I was in good shape. I pretty much had a good grasp on a lot of the the concepts. And of course, when you go through the fire academy there, all those concepts are at a very basic level. And it was fresh for me. I hadn't worked as a firefighter for a very long time, like maybe a, a year and a half at the most. So it wasn't like I had gone through a, my first academy a long time ago. So everything was still pretty fresh for me and in my mind. So it wasn't a hard transition going back through and starting that student process again. I've always taken a leadership role in most of the stuff in my life and I shot for that again. So I ended up being the president of my cadet class. 
I enjoyed it. I tried to put as much emphasis on helping guys who didn't have any fire experience as much as I could with the very little experience that I had or the little bit that I could at least give them the heads up on. But I enjoyed it. The academy went by pretty quick for me. It's obviously not nearly what the Marine Corps is, but it does have a paramilitary feel to it. So even that transition for me was pretty easy as well compared to somebody who has never been exposed to that. And were you experiencing at the small department and when you first got on the larger department, that same sort of mix of people that were there for the right reasons and those that weren't? Like, what was the ratio like and how did you process that? Obviously, at a big city, there's a lot more places to hide because of the mass numbers. Without a doubt, I'd say that those numbers are higher. The benefits of working for a big city are a lot greater as far as pay and retirement and health insurance, things like that. So that draws a lot of people in for those types of reasons. And where smaller departments are just a little bit below that, they don't get paid as well. And the insurance either costs a little more it's, and the retirement's a little bit different and, and all these things. So it's not nearly as enticing to somebody just coming off the street. So I felt like you, for the most part, you, you got guys that really wanted to be at those small town departments, the quality control from how their hiring process worked was much better. They could really weed out those people a lot easier compared to the bigger city. When you pull those numbers that big, you're just bound to get some people who just aren't going to put the effort in. And who were your leaders and mentors, guides when you first got on and you hit the floor? Like who did you align with and how was that experience? My first officer, for sure, without a doubt, at my smaller department, when I first got my fire job, that lieutenant at the time, he gave me my base for sure. I wouldn't nearly be the fireman I am without him. He gave me a, a solid base. He put, he had a ton of experience when I met him. He put an endless amount of energy and time into me into really passing on as much knowledge as he could and truly selflessly giving me everything that I needed to succeed to be a better version of what he wanted to be absolutely just one of the most selfless people I know and, and, and wanted to wanted to see the fire service generations behind him be better than what it was when he got in. He set me up for success. I, I learned a ton. His expectations of me were extremely high and all I wanted to do was make sure I, I met up with him. So we trained a lot. He taught me a ton. That was just such a big foundation for me that I, I think that's really what helped me succeed moving forward in, in my career. Of course, now that I've gone through and have, a, have a, a few years under my belt, I've had people along the way. My officer now, my lieutenant, I worked with him on the rescue team before he was promoted. Now that he's the lieutenant, man, he is, just fell into the officer role. I, that's probably my officer idol now. If I can do what he's doing, he, he advocates for us. He puts the time in. He trusts us. I've had lots of people throughout my career, but those are probably the two most prominent that I, I idolize and, and really try to mimic their leadership. So when did you first get into instructing? Did you do it in the smaller department or was that something that happened when you got to your larger location? It kind of happened early in my career, but I don't think I was in the right spot or had nearly the experience or confidence to do it. But I got on with the rescue team early in my career. Those guys get looked at for a lot of different things for instruction, like auto extrication and stuff like that. So when you would meet up with crews, because you had that extra training of those specialties, guys would look at you to kind of teach them and things like that. I just didn't have 
the experience or the knowledge under my belt at all. So I, I would, I would do my best and try to play my role, but it was very uncomfortable for me. I just didn't feel like I was up to par with nearly the guys that had the time. It was just not a, a natural thing for me at all. The leadership stuff felt more natural, but just teaching classes, I, I just didn't feel like I, I had the base under me. As the years kind of went on, I stayed such a strong student in trying to learn as much as I possibly could and, and get experience from guys. When I finally actually truly started instructing, I felt like I was ready but I didn't know if I, the same thing, I, I haven't been in the fire service for a long time. And I didn't know if I had the experience. When I listen to guys that are instructors, they got 20 plus years on the job. They've had tons and tons and tons of experience. And, and man, I, that's not where I am. And I haven't made hundreds of fires and grabs and rescues and all these things. Like, so I didn't, there was no way that I was going to stand and rub shoulders with these people and be on the same track that they were. But at the same time, I felt a need and a, a hole in my area that I, I was like, we got to do something and we have to share this knowledge. Like we're going to do these trainings and, and guys, even before the conferences were big, guys are reading books and just the experience and knowledge at all. When you go and talk to different people, when we get together, the collaboration is huge. And if we could put it all in a book or something, we could all benefit from this, but you don't get any of that unless you're sitting across the, the kitchen table from those people and hearing those stories or hearing those opinions or what you would have done different. And so by the time that conferences got big and I, I had had a lot of a student aspect and training and things like that, I just felt like I have to share this information. Whether guys are going to look at me and be like, man, that guy's young in the fire service. He doesn't know what he's talking about or he has no experience. I at least have to put it out there. And if somebody benefits from it, awesome. Then that's a win to me. That's just kind of how it came about. I got asked to start instructing and I was like, yeah, all right, let's do it. And it was still kind of an uncomfortable thing for me. But then by the time I had finished my first class or so, it paid off and it felt good. And you had guys that were like, all right, yeah, man, thank you so much for, for teaching. And we really appreciate this opinion. And I, I tell the guys all the time, the same thing, like I'm learning too. And, and this stuff's new to me. And I do all this different classes and stuff like I, I don't have all the answers, but if I could give you just a, a piece or if I could reiterate something that I heard from a guy that does have a ton of experience because you're never going to make it out to that conference for whatever reason, and you just got it because I told you about it, that's a win to me. And that's kind of how it was. And I've been blessed with good feedback and, and I, I've definitely grown over the time as an instructor, like I'm sure you, you'd be able to relate with the most guys do. Like every time you teach a class, you gain a little bit and learn a little bit and do it better and better. And how'd you get involved with the victim fire fatality research? We started looking into that based off of the fire rescue survey. We started digging into some of these these surveys that were pure data across the country because it just seemed like you couldn't ignore it. It was such a big average of numbers that you're like, okay, regardless of city size or or whatever else, like, man, you if you can go and go like, this is the time that we're all averaging, that has to be something you go, wow, that, well, that's got to be our standard at the very minimum to go, let's shoot for these numbers. Let's do this. When we look at fatalities, to me, that's everything. The firefighter deaths and stuff like that, I, I think we have a decent idea for the most part. Like the job is dangerous and being well prepared and in shape and knowledgeable and training, like these are our avenues that can hopefully try to mitigate these injuries and deaths amongst firemen. The job's still dangerous at the end of the day, without a doubt. And we try to mitigate them by doing all these things civilian fire fatalities we don't have a lot of control of until we get on scene 
and then we have control of what our actions are from that point on that have an impact on that civilian survivability. And you're not going to win them all. I mean, that's obvious. We do everything we possibly can, and it's just nothing you can do. Those days are there. We can't win them all. But if we're not looking at fires and these things to go, is there commonalities between them? Is there times that we need to focus on? Are we doing things different than what we thought we do on paper? A lot of that kind of stuff. So just trying to see trends and how we can get better. And that's the end of it all, really. And I mean, it all relates back to to the end of the job and, and what we're trying to do. We're trying to save lives and on these fire scenes, trying to save people inside. To ignore something like fire fatalities to me is pure negligence. And so we have to at least do whatever research it takes, whether it's on your own or whatever. But look at these fires and go, all right, we did this in this amount of time or we chose this tactic or hey, these are the conditions we had. Could we have done this a little bit faster? And if so, how do we make that happen? How do we get better for the next one? Or, hey, we came across this fire and these are the conditions we saw and this is where we came across. That That kind of is the same thing of, of passing knowledge to go like, okay, we did everything we did in a decent amount of time and we were well prepared for it. We still had a civilian fire fatality. And as horrible as it is, when we're looking at it, there may not have been really anything else we could have done better that's jumping out to us. We take it as a whole and go, okay, well, let's focus on making this better, making that better. But we kind of took it upon just to see where we could improve. That's the end of the day is we want to make that number zero. And if we're not looking at the days that it wasn't a zero, we're not learning from them. It seems looking back again over just the breadth of my career so far that we have way more data available way more fire science data available in research. We have the data you guys are putting together, videos, we've got conferences and courses. It seems like we've have more to back what we're trying to bring forward and talk about and encourage and inspire everyone than we've ever had. And yet we still have people that we can't convince or that they just ignore it. Like, why do you think that still happens? It just seems to be looking back that it was easy to dismiss things because it was all anecdotal. I've been to this and this happened. I've been to this and this happened. And you couldn't argue it because you had nothing to support it. But now you have more than you could ever want to support it. Yet there's still the block. I think for some of those guys that have a lot of years in that they've done stuff for so long. And a lot of the times it, it worked that when something comes out that shows we could have been doing it better or we should be doing it this way, which could improve things now they're a little defensive on it as if like, like they were doing it wrong their whole career, which isn't the case at all. Because just like you said, it wasn't there. Those guys went off of pure experience and, that, and that's what they had for the most part. The research and data and all these things are relatively young and new. I think sometimes it, it gets presented like that. Like, man, why were we doing that? We should be doing this. And it's like, well, yes, we should be doing this. But those guys were doing that back then because they thought that it was the right thing. It wasn't really ill-intended. They went in with the best that they had to do. There's just so much out there, so much out there. Between conferences and all these other things that you can go and actually get hands-on with is a massive movement in itself. But then the availability of books and internet blogs and these articles and podcasts, and it's in your hand. It's literally in your hand. I don't know how you don't seek this stuff out. And for the most part, like you, you really don't like you, if you follow social media, you can literally just follow pages and, and like pages and whatever. And it gets 
shoved down your throat. It's right there on your feed. All this stuff comes to you. You don't even have to get on there and search for Firehouse or Fire Engine or whatever magazine and try to dig through these articles. Like they're there right in front of you. I mean, we share this stuff, like the Instagram page that you run, like it's there. It's all right in front of you. So I don't know how you can at least see the stuff. And as a professional go, all right, let's talk about this, whether you believe in it or disagree with it, or you just want to put it to the test and go, Hey, I I saw somebody do this and I I really want to see if it works or if it's just bullshit. And I don't know how you don't do that. That way you can kind of figure out like, okay, yeah, that whatever, that's how that department does it. But we don't do like, but if you go and you do this stuff or you read about it and you're like, man, like that worked and it makes you better at your job and it makes things easier for you at the end of the day. Like most of this stuff that we learn are these tips and tricks that we pick up or whatever else. It makes my job easier when I find somebody who's like, Hey, have you tried throwing the ladder this way or forcing the door that way? And I'm like, man, I I would have never thought about that. But that guy across two States over thought about it and he did it and he put a video out on it, how to do it. And now I can go try it on a door. And when I'm like, Okay, that was 10 times easier than I've been doing it. I don't know how you don't look at that and go like, no, I'm going to keep doing it the way I like, whoa, that was all right. That's the new way now. And then you go share that and spread it and like, hey, man, let me show you something. And guys will look at you like you're amazing because like, how did you think of that? You're like, oh, I didn't. I'm going to show you. Let me introduce you to this guy that did and follow his YouTube video. Like it's all out there. And it's just the access and the ease of access of information. I don't have an excuse of, of why guys could possibly ignore any of it. I could understand why they would get a little defensive about some of the things and feel like, well, again, there's their toes stepped on, like they've been doing something wrong. I don't think that's the right way to go about it, but I can understand how they could have a view, but to just purely ignore the stuff. No way, man. Do you think sort of the key traits of these people that we admire in the service and aspire to be like is, and then we're trying to emulate, like accepting that there probably are things we're doing right now in this generation that aren't the best way to do things. And that'll always be changing and that they really aren't married to the way, like whatever they're doing, because I'm sure whatever you're just like you said with the force entry and you could name any other skill that if someone showed you something better, you would switch tomorrow. You would abandon everything you've been doing and do the better thing. There's just always this openness to change and it's more flexibility. And we're trying not to marry it to our ego and our identity. It's not what it's about. It's about doing the best thing. Absolutely. And I think that's what it comes down to is the ego. We almost get to the point where we take it personally, like we have it figured out. And if somebody tells us something different, that's outside of what we've been doing, we're like, Oh no, that no, I I got it. I got the answers. But this job's too dynamic for that. And at the end of the day, it's not about us. It's about the people. So if if that means exactly like you said, I, I completely flush everything that I was doing and start a completely new way. If that means it's better for the people that are depending on me, then that's what I have to do. You got to set your ego aside. You got to set all that aside. If doing something different makes me one second faster. That's one more second that would make a difference for that person who is calling, expecting me to be one second faster. That's just what you have to do. And it's kind of a funny thing because on the fire service, we are very defensive about it and we get real upset about it. And we don't like change. You know, that gets thrown all the time. The fire service doesn't like change, but, but on the medical side, it's such a natural occurrence. We change protocols all the time of What's the new tool that we're going to use? What's the new chest compressions that we're going to do? What's the new medication that we're going to follow? And it, and they'll take one away and put a new one and go, oh, actually, we're going to change the dosage for that one. But we've been using that same dosage 
for 15 years. Well, yeah, but we just have this new research that shows that this dosage of it is better. And nobody bats an eye at it. They just go, okay, that's our new dosage. And it's seamless. But on the fire side, somebody brings out a new tool and they're like, why would we have that when I have this one? And I've been using it for 20 years. And it's like, well, because it's been innovated a little bit. It makes you a little bit better. And they're like, no, no, I'm just going to keep using that one because it's been the same. Or I'm going to keep doing that the same way I've been doing it. How do we have that hard line like that? Do you think with the medical side of things, it's that people don't identify, again, they don't strongly identify with helping people in that way. Sometimes I feel that when firefighters say, I want to help people, I feel like they want to help them on the fringes, right? They want to help cut the car. They want to help shore up the trench. They want to help bring someone down the ladder. In some of those cases, you are touching people and you are connected to them, but you're not like intimately connected in the way that you might be on the medical side of things. So that in conjunction with not really identifying with the medical side of things. So then you end up deferring to people that do know, like you have some humility there, either humility or you don't care. If you tell me something, I'll just go with it because I really don't want to invest the energy and time and I really don't care. So you tell me and I'll just do it. Whereas people strongly identify with all the fire stuff. And again, it hurts their ego when they've been told they've been doing something wrong. And maybe that piece you mentioned about, it's all about good intention, right? Like these people before us that taught us things were had all the best intention and they were doing the best they could with what they had. So it's not looking back and shaming or blaming or pointing or laughing or any of these things. It's just even within my career, I've taught things and I've looked back and like that was the information I had and I taught it and it was wrong. And then I've had to sort of sit with that and not take it personally and just learn the new thing and start teaching it the newer way. Absolutely. Same thing, personal opinion. I, I think that medical for us is always falling on the shoulders at the end of the day. The buck stops outside of our hands. It always ends up on at a hospital, right? A doctor, whatever it else. There's always somebody else that has the main control of all that and you're kind of just falling. At, but when it comes to the fire side, it is heavily reliant on individual people and those guys experience and what that person has in their knowledge bank because we've relied on senior mans and we've relied on fire officers and things like that and they have huge impacts on how things turn out same thing with firefighters what their abilities are is such a big thing so i think when you have somebody who has experience or or thinks that they they have it down and have been doing a certain way they get put on a pedestal because they're valuable. Everything that they have, their knowledge base, their experience is so valuable that if all of a sudden that shift changes and we go, well, now what you've been doing isn't so valuable. Now we need to learn this. And we all kind of start back over at base level to go, okay, let's learn about doing this different, whatever it is, pulling this hose. Let's look at pulling this hose a different way. And it puts everybody at ground zero. And I think that sometimes can be uncomfortable for people to go, man, I'm, I'm not the guy anymore right now. Like now I'm, I'm a student along with all these people. So really like anything, it comes down to perspective. You mentioned there that with the medical side of things we see is like the buck stops with the doctor, even the paramedics. But we understand with the medical side of things, we understand the chain of survival, right? And if we're not there fast enough and get on compressions and defib and the medics don't do their part in the chain, it doesn't matter if the doctor's at the end of the chain because we didn't do our part so the person's still going to die. We haven't given them the best chance. But with fire, we're very much like we made the grab, we saved their life. It's like, man, you don't pull anybody out of a fire and they just walk away and thank you. 
Exactly. They get handed the medics. They go to the hospital. It's the same chain of survival. We're just another piece in the process. So do you think we tie ourselves too strongly to, I touched that person in the fire. I saved their life. It's like, well, that's not all that saved their life. There was a lot that had to happen after that. People that got hands on that person that as part of this team that we're a part of helped save that person's life. For sure, man. We all want to be the hero. Man, every fire I go to, everybody has a different opinion of what they want to do on fire. I want to make grabs. That's what I want. Every fire I go to, I want to pull somebody out. I want to save somebody's life. That's why I got into this job. I, I want to do that stuff, man. I want to make that big impact on somebody and save somebody. Like That's what I want to do. And that, that hero stuff, that is what you want to do. The truth is, like absolutely, we can't make any of this happen by ourselves. I could be the best nozzle man in the whole entire country. If the guy on the pump panel can't get me water, I don't get to do anything. Nobody cares that I'm a badass on the nozzle. I'm just sitting there with a dry line. It all has to work collectively. And that goes with both sides, medical and fire. We we don't get to do any of this stuff by ourselves. None of it will happen. We are all a piece in the puzzle. And if it doesn't all go correctly and fall in how it's supposed to, and one chain's weaker than the other, those repercussions are felt one way or another. Yeah, I've said before too, even with say fire prevention officers, right? Like they never get the kudos for preventing the fires that never happened, right? And saving hundreds of thousands of lives because that building that they did their job on never burned. But we don't tie that word hero or into that. So maybe this is where the humility piece is missing about like if fire is dramatic and the things we do look and are oftentimes dramatic, but it's not the only piece of the puzzle that saves someone's life. There's so much that we can point out negatively in the fire service, our own departments and everything else. But at the end of the day, the truth is that the fire service as a whole right now is probably one of my favorites of how it's been. Just the brotherhood and and the amount of information out there is incredible. But everything in the fire service has gotten better without, just like you said, every piece of the puzzle, without guys doing fire prevention like they would and doing these non-sexy tasks like going to houses and putting smoke detectors in for the person who needs it man maybe that smoke detector got that family out and saved their life and that's huge and without gear manufacturers we wouldn't have the best gear that we have now without scba manufacturers our masks wouldn't be as good our bottles wouldn't go as long we wouldn't have all these different things that allow me to go into a fire a little bit farther allow me to go into a fire a little bit longer work a little bit more search a little bit longer like all this stuff is, has gotten better and better and better over the years, regardless of all the little hiccups and mishaps that we can complain about. At, at the end of the day, things have gotten better. The mechanics that keep the trucks and the equipment working, like we just think we just get in the truck and just get there. It's like, you didn't spec this truck. You didn't buy this truck. You didn't fix this truck. You just got to show up and everything worked. <laughs> man, those guys are invaluable. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Everything, man, it, it all, we have to be on top of our game in, in every aspect. And that's that mentality when you say I'm a team player and I'm, I work well as a team. Like I think maybe we need to see the team as the whole team. For sure. I'll tell you, like I want to work. I want to do the fun stuff. But out of the end of the day, like that's a hard thing too. And we transition. So in my department, if we don't have an engineer, the firefighters will ride up and drive the truck and pump the panel. Every day that those days come up, I'm like, no, I don't want to do that because I'm not going inside. I know I'm going to be on the outside. I know I'm going to be running around and in station clothes and not fighting fire with these guys when they catch something good. And, and that's a hard thing for me to do, but I have to step into that role and go, 
all right, these guys are going to go and it's their time to play today. And I have to be on top of my game in the role that I'm positioned in right now in order for them to be successful. And man, getting that truck there isn't easy and pumping that panel properly, just like you said, for that nozzle firefighter, if they're just sitting there with the dry line, it doesn't matter. So, and pumping's an art, man. Like it's a real, truly, there's truly. something to it. So if you don't do that right, again, like that's part of you saving someone's life. There's heroism in that too. If we, if we want to use that word, which gets, it gets overused, but we all know what we're talking about when we say it. It goes back to the old history of why we're there. Like we all identify with, with that apparatus, right? Like when people ask what station are you from? I tell them 44s. Like, I don't tell them this is what crew or this, like I'm part of this crew. Like that's the house and that apparatus, right? I'm, I'm on the engine or I'm on the truck or whatever it is because it takes everything. You don't just get to go like I'm the firefighter at station, whatever. No, like you, you're a piece of that. When did you start instructing with No Quit Writ and then talk to me about MV Fire Rescue Texas? Both those factions are doing such really powerful work. The No Quit Writ is a class that's taught underneath MV now. I got on with that a little bit later. I, I've started teaching the first line engine ops class. I was a instructor with that class. I, I taught hose deployment during that from the very beginning. I was very, very blessed to be invited to teach on that cadre. That is without a doubt. I Those guys that were involved in, in all of that helped start me instructing in, in that aspect of my career. I'm very blessed and thankful for that. Over time, things were growing and growing and we had such success with the first line engine ops class that we started looking at different avenues. Tom Hollick, who was doing the no quit writ, had been doing it for a long time. I want to say it's been nine years, if I'm right, that he's been doing it and he's had nonstop success. He's been doing it at kind of a local area. He wanted to expand it. And I took that class. All of his instructors, if he ever invites anybody to teach on that cadre, he makes you go through the class first. And I think that that is invaluable. And so I took the class, was hooked. I Hands down, at least for me, it was the best writ class that I I had taken at the time, and I, I fell in love with it. I was blessed in getting invited to be a part of that cadre. Those guys are all solid. So I've pretty much been an instructor under MV Fire Rescue for most of my instructing. I don't instruct with the engine ops class anymore. We've gotten a lot of cadre on there. At some point, I get so thin with time that between fire and instructing and doing all that and keeping the focus on family it was getting to where it was difficult so i, I kind of took a, a hard look the guys that that are instructors at at mv if i were to name people tom hollick and, and kevin fluger and some of these guys man they they're well versed in balancing that and i idolized them for for balancing the family and, and and work thing and so i i think i took kind of a hard look and was like all right i need to adjust my time and priorities a little bit so i don't teach the engine ops class anymore I am still on the cadre for no quit writ. I'm a lead instructor that we're going to launch a search class here uh, officially next month in October. And how'd you get involved with writing articles from what you're saying before? Like academically, it really wasn't your jam. So how did you get down that road? It's kind of a funny thing because that's been an uncomfortable thing for me too, is I've gotten a lot of compliments on my articles and writing. And it was a hard thing for me to accept those compliments, but it was really cool to hear that that those people viewed it well and that what i was putting out seemed to click well and they they enjoyed it so i had gotten to a point where like my mind's always going a million miles an hour and i'm one of those guys where like if i hear something or i see something i don't know about it i'm like what about that chevy truck i do it and i have to i research everything like i get 
deep, deep, deep into it. I have to figure out every single thing. And so I had done that so much with fire and during classes and stuff that I had like hundreds and hundreds of notes scrambled all over between my computer and my phone, just like random thoughts or little excerpts from classes or something that somebody said real quick. And I'm like, oh, I got to jot that down. I had all of this stuff and I'm like, okay, I have to organize this a little bit. And I sat down one day and just jumped into it. And I started to organize things kind of into categories. And the more and more I looked at it, I had some of these prominent categories. I could kind of figure out like, okay, these are things that I've been focused on recently. And these are things that I more than likely are more prominent issues that I feel like I've needed to either research on or address. So when I looked at them, I was like, I'm going to start kind of putting them together. And the more and more I read through like all those little random thoughts and cliff notes and stuff like that, it kind of just started to formulate. And it was, it was more of like me almost ranting and being like, if I could just get out all of this in one way. And so I just decided like, all right, I'm just going to write. And so I, I got my first article done and, and wrote it. And I, the only intention was to basically keep it within my small circle of my crew and, and guys that I taught with and whatever else. And that's kind of what came about. And I got a lot of compliments on it. They were like, man, you need to, you need to write, you need to write, you need to write. So I was like, okay, I'm, well, like I said, it was a hard thing to take a compliment. So I was like, okay, let me try to write. I have these times where it builds up and I need to put it somewhere. So I did another one again and I pushed that article out a little bit further to some bigger names and people that I idolized as mentors and things like that. And people that I respected that were on the teaching circuit and I got a lot of good feedback from it. And so it wasn't something that I, I nearly intended or something that I, I was going to take anywhere. It was more for my own kind of enjoyment and, and just getting it out there. And I'm going to try and keep it going. How are you approaching your mental health? I mean, obviously at 18 and losing your mom, it was incredibly impactful and a struggle for you. So how have you managed since then? And how are you approaching it now being on fire? How do you keep yourself squared away in that aspect? Through the Marine Corps and everything else, it's kind of always been that like, suck it up and be tough and get through it. And I think that's kind of how I've built the foundation for myself when it came to a lot of that. As I'm older now and married with a family, I definitely look at it with more scrutiny and I take it a lot more serious because I wouldn't ever want something that I'm just neglecting because I don't think it's a big deal to end up rubbing off on my family environment or especially my daughter because she's young. I, I want to be able to shape her in a good way. But I've always tended to kind of keep things in and, and get through them. I really enjoy, like I, I really, really do enjoy helping people. I love any chance that I get to do it. So a lot of times when I get people that come across an issue or stuff like that, I do try to share my experiences in life and use them as, as framework or examples for people to try to hopefully get ahead of something or, or maybe find a solution that works for them if they can hear how I did something or, or how I got through something. I love the problem solving of it. I, if I could help everybody, I could if I would. But I, I try to do a lot of that to, to keep it vented out. As I've gotten older, I, I share a lot more. I talk to my wife, obviously, a lot more about things. I think I started young at just more prideful to be like, it's just part of life. Like everybody, you just struggle and you get hard and you learn from it and you get better and you move on. And then that's just, that's how life goes. Do you have moments of peace? Do you find it hard to just be still and balance things out that way like with your nervous system right is, is it always pinned i definitely would say that i'd find it hard to be stagnant at all do you see it that way as stagnant and not 
being productive or could you frame it as recovery so you can go harder, even harder than you already are? If I were to be honest, I'd, I'd see it as, as unproductive. I definitely do take the time. I'm not 100 miles an hour, 24 hours every day. If I have a day where I just hang out and don't really do much or whatever else, even in that after that moment, I may in, enjoy it. But the next day, I'm like, man, I, I didn't do shit. Like, I got to catch up. I got to do this. I got to do that. Like, I look at it in a negative way to where I'm like, okay, I, I need to get back on track. But I mean, at the, on the other end, you, you feel it too. You you can burn out. It does take a little bit of slowing down and, and back and forth. But the way that I truly view it, I, it it's hard for me to, to slow down like that. I wish I had the ability to be able to do that. I'm sure it's just like a skill like anything else, right? But there's a lot of skills to keep up. <laughs> Yeah, I have my outlets for sure. I have things that I, I love doing. My soul's ingrained with music, so I, I still try to almost always have have music going on, or I keep, try and keep myself occupied with something. If I'm if I'm not doing something really physically productive, I can listen to a podcast, or I can listen to a book on audio. I can go read a book. I can listen to some music, stuff like that. And that's kind of my downtimes and moments of peace and clarity, where I'm not. I can kind of clear my head and and have it be be silent for a little bit with that background noise. My life is ingrained with fire. Like I live, eat, breathe, sleep, fire nonstop all the time. I love this job. So I've done more in the last probably couple of years to make sure that I create some separation at different points in my life because I'm sure my wife is probably years over me talking about fire. <laughs> but I try to create this separation a little bit more where we go do something that it has nothing to do with my career and, and it's a concert or it's this or it's that. So where it just completely gets me away for a little bit. Tell me how long you've been riding motorcycles for and about being the sergeant at arms for the firefighter motorcycle club. Sure, sure. I've rode motorcycles since I was young. I've quads, dirt bikes, and like that. That was a big thing in Northern California. I mean, where I grew up, a lot of guys rode. So we were always around them. I didn't actually get onto like a big motorcycle or street bike until I was in the Marine Corps and I got on a uh, an actual like street bike crotch rocket and it was a blast. I was too young and to be on it for sure. I didn't have the maturity, so I drove it a little crazy, but I've always loved it, the feeling of it, the riding. I mean, just being out in the environment like that, I've always loved it. As I got older, of course, I'm like, all right, I got to slow down a little, at least a little bit and be a little bit more comfortable. And so getting on a, a Harley was a, a good thing for me. But that for sure is a mental outlet for me. I can get on on a motorcycle and just go ride and have those moments of peace. Just be out looking at the scenery, that moment where I can kind of refresh and I'm not really thinking about much. I'm just enjoying it. The motorcycle club thing for me was almost seamless. Like I've always been attracted to the camaraderie of, of groups like that, Marine Corps, firefighting. The motorcycle club is, is just another outlet of that. It's a firefighter motorcycle club. So there's already two different brotherhoods there that kind of ingrain into one. Guys that on the bikes that share the common love for that. And then we have the same career firemen. So it's a cool thing when I get guys coming in from other areas where our club has chapters or we go out and visit those areas. It's just one more step of, of the brotherhood, right? Like you, you go out there and, and the guys are happy to talk to you and see you because you're another fireman. And on top of that, you're you're another brother from another chapter of the club. So it was pretty seamless. And it must be great for you traveling the country and seeing the fire service as a whole, as opposed to being in your little bubble. 
Absolutely. Between the motorcycle club and me taking classes and getting to teach around the state and stuff like that, the exposure to all these different fire departments is, is such a cool thing to me. Getting to talk to guys and find common areas or how they do things different and the mindset, stuff like that. It's such a cool thing to do. Is that what's keeping you optimistic about where the fire service is at and where we're going? Absolutely. I'm one of those guys, I make it a thing to where if I'm on vacation or whatever else, if I'm out of town in any way, wherever I'm at, I go to that fire station and I go try to trade patches and talk to the guys and, and at least get a little bit of a brief exposure to that area. I love it. Like I said, I, I live, eat, breathe and sleep it. I, I'm ingrained with it. So it's, it's exciting for me to go and make that contact. But so between that and just feeling that kind of brotherhood from those guys, I've never been to a place without a doubt. I've never been to a place where guys are like, no, nah, we're busy or guys open the door they're they're excited the minute you're like hey i'm a firefighter from this they're excited come to the table here's coffee here's this they love it i found that in the marine corps early and i can go somewhere and and tell another oh you're you're in the marine corps yeah i'm a marine too that does the same thing that bond that instant bond and the fire service is exactly like that that instant bond of i don't even know the guy's name yet i'm getting ready to shake his hand he's already happy to meet me and wants to talk to me and I want to do the exact same for him. I want to hear him know who he is and what he's about. Like just because he's a firefighter, the conferences, the classes and the exposure that I've had to that the last probably two years, those guys that are so passionate about this job. And when you find those like-minded people and they, they end up in these same areas, it, it is such an instant bond. And it's just, you're happy. You get there and you're like, Yep, this is the people that I'm supposed to be around. And this is exactly the people that I was looking for. And it it instills that that hope and optimism back in you to know, okay, like that guy has the same problems that I do in my area or my department or whatever else, but he has this and he shared this with me and shared that with me. And we all have this common goal of of making it better. And a lot of the times, especially in in these big departments, you can start to feel like you're such a small a small number and trying to make changes a lot of times it's like turning around a cruise ship but you feel like you're really not making progress especially in the time frame that your your expectation is which is obviously crazy but it just feels like you're kind of treading water there for a little bit and then you get around other people and you see the impact you see how far everything goes and then you make contacts with people and keep up with these guys and whether it's a a like of a photo they put out on Instagram or a share of something, or you text them for, Hey, I got a question about this or whatever, man, the more and more that, that, that goes, you're like, okay, like the fire service is out there and the passion is out there and the brotherhood is out there. And it's the best it's ever been, at least for me. Yeah. As much as social media gets vilified and there are definitely maybe some poor intentions of the people that are producing it and for us and what they want to get out of it. And there are some negatives and obviously you can get wrapped up in it. But I think as a tool, if you use it properly, it's been a great, again, an avenue to, to bring these like-minded people together and keep us all moving in the right direction. Maybe it's just my exposure to it the last two years or so, but I've never seen anywhere where so many guys are uplifting each other. I could get on a page and there's there's just not a lot of like hating. There's not a lot of competition. There's not a lot of any, like you share something 
and nobody's like, oh man, like, no, I, I don't want to share that. Like everybody just shares it. And they're like, yes. And they, they just want to lift everyone up, man. We can get on these, on these groups on social media and somebody will post something and whether it's something positive or it's a moment of doubt or whatever it is, like a million guys get on there and start commenting about it. Like, good job, dude. Like keep at it, whatever it is. Or, or guys want to answer a question to something so fast and, and share and just uplift everybody. It's, it is very refreshing and it's such a, a wholesome thing to see. Well, on that note, how can people reach out to you if they want to connect? In any way, Facebook, Instagram, you can reach me through uh, the MV Fire Rescue Texas has uh, Facebook and Instagram as well. I told guys I got no problem putting my email and phone number out. My email is dcdruy22 at gmail.com. And my phone number is 512-650-0408. And please, please, please reach out. I love talking to firemen. And if I can help you with anything even better, if not – Reach out, give me some feedback, let me know, share something with me, teach me something. I, I truly love this job. I love the brotherhood. I'm excited to meet new firefighters from anywhere. I'm glad this internet age has connected us, and I really appreciate the opportunity to talk to you. And, man, keep doing podcasts and keep putting your message out there because it's it's helping. Man, thank you. I'm extremely grateful for getting to the chance to talk to you and meet you, man. I Guys who follow me in any way know that I – share the hell out of everything you put i your instagram page that you run always has just pure gold coming out of it your podcasts are the same exact way man i i'm grateful for what you do i'm uh extremely grateful for for you having me i tell guys all the time i'm just a nobody fireman in the middle of texas but i'm blessed to be able to share this time with you guys man yeah i think we all feel that way about the you know nobody from nowhere but together we're a lot more right absolutely yeah Awesome, man. Okay, well, I'm going to let you go and enjoy your day. We're always connected, so I'll chat to you super soon, right? Sounds good, Scott. Thank you so much, man. I appreciate it. Okay, enjoy your day, bro. You too.